ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in to this uh, premiere live airing of Surreal Politiques. This is Stage 1, Episode 2. I'm your host, as you may have gathered, and thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, those of you who have managed to tune in live, thank you very much for tuning in. I sent out an email to all of you earlier, and I told you to watch us on Entropy Streaming, and I would, uh, I would encourage you to do that in the future when it's working. <laughs> but it's not working. And I found that out immediately before we went on the air. So that's less than ideal. But we'll talk shop a little bit more later. As I say, this is uh, Stage 1, Episode 2. And I titled this today, Choice Architect. And I'll tell you a little bit about why I chose that title in just a moment. What do you think about that music, huh? I, I'm a real fan of that. That was uh, produced by a fan of uh, your humble correspondent, a good friend of mine, actually. I shouldn't call him a fan. Uh, a man goes by the name of Scotty Jam Jam, and he uh, used to produce a show that I syndicated called um, Obzine Podzine, a very talented guy who put that together for us. So thank you very much, Scotty Jam Jam. What is political power? One way to think about it is as the capacity to alter the behavior of others. In this sense, the formal acquisition of such power, as in the assignment to a position within the government or the political party, is merely the acknowledgement of a previously existing state of affairs. One obtains the assignment by having influenced the behavior of the person or group responsible for the designation, and so he has necessarily already displayed the power at issue. The title only bestows a sense of officialdom, though of course this officialdom does have the impact of amplifying the power in question. In more shallow analyses of government and politics, there is a tendency to think that political power derives from office rather than the other way around. This confusion of the order of operations is no less vexing in politics than it is in mathematics. If one does his math from right to left, ignores parenthetical equations, or subtracts before he multiplies, he is fortunate to fail in his ed education. Should he make such errors later in his career, he could cause airplanes to fall out of the sky or create any uh, other manner of tragedy that may ensue from miscalculation. When men believe they deserve political power and cons consider it an unnatural state of affairs that they do not hold office, similar frictions apply. The most vivid example of this is terrorism. Men believe it is unfair that they cannot access the levers of power and they go on to demonstrate why they are un unfit to do so by harming the innocent. None of us are entirely devoid of power. Some have more power than others, to be sure, but each of us influence people every day. Even if one chose to live a life of solitude, hiding in the wilderness and living off the land, his choice ultimately has no less effect on the price of goods and services by refraining from their purchase than if he made it his life's work to acquire all that he could. In one case, he subtracts from demand, in the other he adds, but the fact of his existence is going to be a part of that equation whether he likes it or not. I am a student of persuasion. By listening to this show, you will become one too if you are not already. On another production, I recently spoke at some length about a behavioral psychologist named Robert Cialdini and his book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. While a recap of that discussion will be beyond the scope of our task today, we can briefly say that Cialdini and others who study persuasion make the case that our decisions are largely subconscious processes. These are influenced by identifiable factors upon careful consideration, but are generally unknown to the decider. For example, a voter typically convinces himself that he supports this or that candidate for prudent reasons pertaining to policy positions, but studies show that decidedly non-policy-oriented factors like physical appearance can be decisive in elections. People tend to favor political slogans more 
if they uh, if they heard them while they were eating something they enjoyed, which I thought was pretty pretty interesting. In another situation, people were found to um, appreciate. Uh, I'm sorry, dislike political slogans if they heard them. If they heard the political slogans while uh, they while I'm sorry. If they heard the political slogans while putrid odors, undetectable levels of a putrid odor, were piped into the room. I titled today's show Choice Architect as a nod to Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, from whom I heard the term for the first time recently as I listened to the audiobook version of their book Nudge, the final edition, Improving Decisions About Money, Health, and the Environment. And I'll let you know now, um, if you are interested in this book... You can get it from our sponsor, Books a Million. And uh, I have linked to this at surrealpolitics.com slash nudge, N-U-D-G-E, N-U-D-G-E, surrealpolitics.com slash nudge. Uh, we'll get you links to the paperback, the hardcover, and the digital download, all available from our sponsor, Books a Million. Sunstein and Thaler coined another term in the first edition of the book, which drew a great deal of justifiable criticism. The phrase libertarian paternalism drove their fellow leftists insane because they hate freedom and cannot stand to hear the word libertarian mentioned absent some derisive comment. It should almost go without saying that libertarians did not much care to be associated with paternalism either. The book garnered controversy among those less concerned with the terminology as well, like most leftists, Sunstein and Thaler lack faith in their fellow man. They view the average person as something of a pinball bouncing off the components of his environment and see it as the responsibility of an elite to shape that environment ways in ways that will convince the poor dupe that he is making his own decisions, though they doubt this is really even possible, much less desirable, and certainly not actually the case. If the reader, or listener I should say, detects in this description a tone of contempt, he's not conjuring this in his own imagination, your humble correspondent consider these men dangerous and malicious, though more because of how they apply this view of mankind than because of the view itself. Clearly, there is some truth to the idea that environmental factors inform a person's decision-making. This is almost too obvious to need stating. Less obvious, but no less true, is the fact that these environmental factors are in no small part shaped by intentional actors who hold the awesome power and responsibility of directing people's behaviors. It is quite prudent that a book should be written to describe this phenomenon, and one might hope that responsible people would read such a book. Let us consider a rather mundane example used in the text, and I think that this example is great because it, it, it is recalled throughout the book, and it really is indicative of the entire purpose of what they're saying. The authors ask the reader to imagine a woman named Catherine, who is the director of food services for a large city school system. Catherine is responsible for the cafeteria in hundreds of schools, and hundreds of thousands of children will have their dietary choices informed by Catherine's decisions. It should almost without saying that Catherine can impact the dietary options of the students by changing the menu, but this is not the only decision that she will make. Will the French fries be the first thing on the line, or will the carrots be more salient? Will cookies and other sweets be at eye level, or will the student need to request one from an adult? While taking the French fries out of the school might be described as a shove, Thaler and Sunstein refer to intelligently choosing their placement as a nudge. 
they purport a desire to preserve the perception of free will and to avoid coercion, but to guide people towards decisions the authors deem preferable through what they refer to as choice architecture. As the authors point out, so long as Catherine maintains her position as the director of food services, she cannot help but make these decisions, and those decisions will unavoidably influence the decisions of the students. Even if she abandons the post, she is choosing to put someone else in charge, and thus she chooses all the same. It is not a question of whether or not she will inform the dietary choices of the students. It is not even a question of degree. The question is, what will she do with the power? She could, at least in theory choose to place food items at random in an effort to avoid transmitting her subjective value judgments to the students. But that is a value judgment all its own, and one doubts it would improve anything other than, say, perhaps Catherine's opinion of herself. She could try to maximize profits or cut costs, depending on whether most of the students in the school district paid for their meals or were receiving them at taxpayer expense. She could take bribes from food vendors and try to improve her own material situation. She could maliciously try to feed the children unhealthy food out of some kind of ethnic or other animus. Considering the full range of Catherine's options, I hope you will agree that the most reasonable thing that Catherine can do with the power of her position is to intelligently arrange the cafeteria in a way that will gently guide the students towards a healthy and enjoyable meal. In this, your humble correspondent agrees with the authors of the book. So why do I have to hold them in contempt? Sunstein and Thaler demonstrate during the text that they are not fools. Thaler is an economist, Sunstein a legal scholar. They understand better than most the fundamental principle of their respective fields of study, which is that human beings respond to incentives. Moreover, they articulate their comprehension of the fact too many libertarians overlook, which is that those incentives are not always measurable in dollars. From this, we may infer that they understand what they are advocating and are capable of contemplating the long-term effects of such advocacy. Yet the authors specifically disavow any such contemplations. They call this bathmophobia, a technical term for an irrational feel of, uh, fear of falling down an incline, which they deride to invoke the concept of the slippery slope argument. They bring up gun control as their featured example, as I quote at some length in the book here. Slippery slope arguments are popular in the United States among those who are opposed to gun control. In this, in this case, X is any restriction on an individual's right to own a gun, say a ban on the ownership of assault weapons, and Z would be the government comes and confiscates all weapons, including steak knives and water pistols. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you get the idea. The problem with the slip, most slippery slope arguments is that they do not provide any evidence of an actual slope. That is, a reason to believe that doing X makes, uh, makes it more likely, much less inevitable, that we will get Y and Z. This does not stop people from making such arguments that are on their face rather dubious. For example, there was a Supreme Court argument about the Affordable Care Act in which the issue being discussed was whether the government could constitutionally require citizens to purchase health insurance. Justice Antonin Scalia famously argued that if this requirement were legal, nothing would stop some future government from requiring people to eat broccoli. Talk about scare tactics. And that's the end of the quote from the book. The student of persuasion, or for that matter anybody who has read Saul Alinsky, can clearly discern here a deceptive tactic being deployed by the authors. Most glaringly, there exists no shortage of examples in which governments gradually chip away at the liberty and property of their citizens. That this gradual process would accelerate subsequent to their being disarmed hardly needs stating, much less their predictive powers of a fortune teller. 
The author mockingly, the author's mockingly point to the absence of a thing every student of history knows is anything but lacking, and on this basis invite the reader to conclude that their critics are unthinking fools. The informed observer of the Supreme Court of the United States must doubt that Antonin Scalia was ever an unthinking fool, or that this, or that his greatest fear was an act of Congress instituting compulsory black broccoli consumption. His example was obviously not chosen out of laconophobia, a clinical term describing an irrational fear of vegetables, but rather to illustrate the absurdity of a legal argument in which the Constitution of the United States grants Congress the power to do whatever it thinks might conceivably improve the health of the citizenry. Politics inevitably involves disagreement over what is and is not good for the country, and this is by no means lost on Sunstein and Thaler. Notably, the authors invoke in the final edition of the book the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court decision which conjured from the penumbras a heretofore undiscovered constitutional right to same-sex marriage, and at that one noticeably, notably less subject to infringement than the explicitly stated Second Amendment which they just finished mocking. In the first edition of the book, they had been advocates of so-called civil unions because they had not predicted the public ever being willing to accept such a thing as same-sex marriage. This was itself a nudge in their view, designed to normalize homosexuality among a people who would reject it given the choice. And they were right, of course, in that the population never did accept it. This was forced upon them by the Supreme Court through a vote of five unelected justices who had uniformly been nominated by presidents who had insisted they believed marriage was between one man and one woman, including Barack Obama. Whatever your thoughts on gay rights, it is not in dispute that certain health problems plague the gay community. If Congress has the power to do whatever it deems may improve the health of the citizenry, then it hardly makes sense that they and the states under their jurisdiction would have no say in something so consequential as marriage. One also doubts Sunstein, a legal scholar, had any trouble discerning the distinct absence of any such right being mentioned in the Constitution of the United States, but, I mean, that hardly even warrants mention, right? I mean, we're talking about liberals here, and the idea that they care whether something is in the Constitution or not is, is really kind of, uh, that's kind of conical, obviously. The authors deride another supposed slippery slope argument pertaining to the opponents of women's suffrage, from whom we sadly hear little today, as I quote again from the book. The track record of slippery slope forecasts in the political domain is not exactly stellar. An opponent of women's suffrage once predicted that giving women the right to vote would create a race of masculine women and effeminate men, and the mating of these would result in the procreation of a race of degenerates. Another opponent, noting that women represent more than half the population, predicted that allowing women to vote would mean that all of our political leaders would soon be women. For the record, in 2021, women held only 26% of the seats in Congress. We only wish that slope had been a little bit more slippery. Oh, that's so clever of you, huh, Sunstein and Thaler? <laughs> now, we might consider ourselves fortunate that most women have not seen fit to degrade themselves by becoming legislators, whatever the authors may wish. And one may have difficulty drawing a straight line from women's suffrage to the transgender craze plaguing our public schools. But anyone with a familiarity of voter demographics would have a hard time making the case that anyone would even be capable of imagining this situation had the electorate remained entirely male. 
Examples abound, but I'll let those suffice to illustrate this point. Sunstein and Thaler are left-wing fanatics whose malice is demonstrated by their hypocrisy. They dress up their fanaticism in social science jargon and describe their scheming as being born of a libertarian impulse, but they celebrate each opportunity to transition from nudge to shove. On this subject, they make another mocking comment, which one suspects they realize is more confession than denial, as I quote again from the book. We bring up slippery slope arguments because critics have used them to criticize nudging and libertarian paternalism. Quote, first it's nudge, then it's shove, then it's shoot, as they say. But why? The whole point of nudging is to avoid shoving, let alone shooting. Which, as I said, that's more of a confession than a denial. What they're saying is, well, we have a loose preference not to shoot you, but it's an option, so take the hint or else, right? I mean, this is the implication of what they're saying. Well, the whole point of nudging is to avoid shoving and shooting you. Don't you like it when we nudge you, or would you prefer to get shot? So why do I bring this up on Surreal Politiques? I imagine some of you may recall a controversy that emerged during the 2012 Republican presidential primary in which former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who was then seeking our party's nomination, told Gregory, uh, David Gregory on Meet the Press. As a matter of fact, wait a second. I have this, uh, I actually have this clip, and I'm going to pull that up real quick, and you'll hear it right from his mouth. That is right in here, media clips, Newt Gingrich. Um, here we go. When Newt Gingrich told David Gregory on Meet the Press. I don't think right-wing social engineering is any more desirable than left-wing social engineering. Now, I, some of you might have heard me talk about this at another point, and I, I thought that he had said this on the debate stage, and I do think that it later came up, but when I went looking for the audio, that's what I found, that he said this on, on Meet the Press. What I recall in any case was this was actually a pretty big controversy. But a lot of people accepted it, like, no, we shouldn't be social engineering. We should just be letting people do whatever they want. Everybody should just go make their own decisions. Why are we right-wing social engineering? The, mark, the remark was in response to a budget plan proposed by Paul Ryan, and it involved some controversial changes to the Medicare program, which might more accurately be described as libertarian-ish than right-wing. But the substance of the issue is almost besides the point. Here, Gingrich expressed a view that pervades among conservatives to this day and is costing our party and our country dearly. Whatever one's views on the desirability of social engineering as a general matter, it is a fact of life, and most certainly it is among the defining characteristics of government policy, second only to its coercive element. Like Catherine deciding where to place the French fries, government decides whether through action or inaction, where to take money, where to give it, who to put in prison, and who to kill. One who seeks to abstain from this decision-making has no place in politics. That's the whole entire point of the exercise. If Republicans abstain from social engineering, they do not free their citizens from its influence. They simply forfeit the influence to people like Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. I might be overstating matters just a bit to say that the entire point of this show is to stop that from happening, but it close enough approximates my point that I ask the listener to infer all appropriate caveats and accept the gist. Thaler and Sunstein get what they want politically and not because their fanaticism is uncompromising. The whole entire point of the concept of nudge is distinctly progressive in its effort to unravel society in stages. Though they mock the concept of a slippery slope, they explicitly aim at bringing about precisely such a rapid decline, 
celebrate these declines coming to fruition and make only the most meager effort to dress this in a thin layer of plausible deniability. Now, Wikipedia um, provides a flattering illustration of Sunstein's life and career, and I beg the listener's pardon for me using this Antifa blog as a source, but it, it's, uh, this is where I got this information from, and I, I don't have any reason to doubt its veracity. Sunstein was born in 1954. He reportedly said he was influenced in his early life by Ayn Rand, but quickly turned leftward politically before graduating high school. When that happened, he didn't declare the system he hated corrupt and bow out. He didn't pick up a rifle and embark on a suicide mission. He didn't try to start a new political party. He went to Harvard Law School. He was never shy about his political views, but he made efforts to dress them up in respectable terminology, exemplified to some degree by the citations listed above. Same-sex marriage used to be something only extremists talk about, as a noteworthy example, so Sunstein proposed civil unions and compared it to the now uncontroversial position of supporting women's suffrage. This allowed him to advance rapidly in law and in education, culminating in his 2009 nomination by Barack Obama to head the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. His nomination was not without controversy, but after a robust debate in the Senate, he was confirmed 57 to 40. In 2014, studies of legal publications found that Sunstein was the most frequently cited American legal scholar by a wide margin. This despite, or perhaps because, he advocates legal theories that are a direct attack on the very concept of law and order. If you're anywhere near my age, it's probably a little late to go to law school, but that's hardly dispositive of the point that I mean to make. Just like Catherine can choose to ban french fries in the cafeteria, you can choose to demand radical political changes that almost nobody supports. You can impress a small group of people with your uncompromising stance on some unpopular position, and you may derive some psychological benefit from doing so. But Catherine is a lot more likely to positively impact the dietary choices of the students if she is less overt in her guidance of their decisions, and you are far more likely to influence people's political thinking if you're not chasing away those who you seek to influence. For all the hysteria surrounding Donald Trump, it is a popular and moderate position to say that illegal immigration is illegal and should be accordingly prevented and punished by law. Leftists tried to make him out like the second coming of Adolf Hitler because they reasonably anticipated this would not be the end of the story. Addressing this very real and serious problem is a nudge toward recognizing that, however the laws may be organized, a society that ceases to reproduce and replaces itself with foreigners is a dying society. That realization carries implications that cannot help but shatter the leftist narratives which plague us today, and there is literally nothing they would not do to stop that little bitty nudge from taking hold. Conservatives warn us that first it's nudge, then it's shove, then it's shoot, and from this concludes that one ought not nudge. They would do far better in politics if they nudge just a little bit harder while looking for opportunities to shove, instead of impotently cursing the nature of politics and waiting for the pronoun police to blow their brains out. Recall from episode one that progressivism emerged not in contrast to conservatism, but to revolution. It was a means, not an end. While the Weather Underground were waging a campaign of terror, Cass Sunstein was finishing law school. Today, if you search Weather Underground on Google, your first results will be from the Weather Channel. You'll have to specify that you're talking about a terrorist organization to find any reference to Bill Ayers.
He narrowly avoided prison for his crimes when it was discovered that the FBI had acted in ways it sought not to brag about, and federal prosecutors dropped the charges which had kept him on the run as a fugitive for years prior to this. Given that many leftists are closeted or not-so-closeted revolutionaries, and as such hold heirs in high regard, it would be overstating matters to say that he has no power. He has more than me and likely more than you, but only to the extent that he is an inspirational figure for fanatics with violent plans or fantasies. Sunstein, by contrast, would go on to influence public policy through scholarly citations, authorship of influential books, and formal employment within the Obama administration in a Senate-confirmed position. Long after he is dead, those citations and those books will continue to deform our society. Even if none of us ever obtain anything like what Sunstein has in terms of success, we would still do well to learn from it. Moreover, we have a choice to make as to whether we nudge the people around us toward that kind of influence or toward mere infamy. Nudge is a vital text for people seeking to understand progressivism. I encourage you to uh, read it or to listen to the audiobook version. And again, you can get those through our, um, our sponsor, Books A Million, at surrealpolitiques.com slash nudge will uh, take you to the links there. The way the book is structured, unfortunately, it doesn't permit the sort of analysis that we've uh, we made elsewhere of Cialdini. And uh, though it contains valuable insights into the subject of persuasion, the book is more about policy than psychology, which, in our view, renders it less interesting podcast fodder. The author's tendency to put forth extremist left-wing political ideas as obvious and objective social goods, we warn will grate against the, say, the, the uh, sensibilities of the same, but keeping one's enemies close and one's friends uh, closer than one's friends is a cliche for the truth it conveys, and we think good people are well served to understand their opponents. Recognizing the scarcity of time, we offer this briefest of summaries before ending this segment and taking your calls. You can extract, extrapolate much of the book's premises from the story of Catherine and the cafeteria. She will influence the people in her sphere whether she likes it or not, and so her best course is to understand that influence and to wield it responsibly. The same thing goes for anyone involved in politics, business, media, or anything else. The idea that any of us can be neutral is nonsensical and can only lead to miscalculation. You don't have to agree with Paul Ryan to see the problem with Newt Gingrich's disdain for right-wing social engineering. Social engineering is the norm, not the exception. We are all social engineering all of the time. The question is whether or not we are conscious of the manner in which we are doing it. It can be right-wing or it can be left-wing, but it cannot be neutral. A lot of what would now be deemed right-wing social engineering used to be considered obvious normalcy. Encouraging healthy families and productive enterprise, discouraging vice and communism, protecting the country from invasion, and instilling in the population the love of country that makes men willing to sacrifice their lives in service of that protection. This is what we have abandoned in the misguided pursuit of free will and in this abandonment of right-wing social engineering. And what we have obtained is something that does not bear one bit of resemblance to greater freedom. It has been replaced by hookup culture, abortion, gender ideology, inflation, bank failures, and rampant drug addiction. We watch on television as millions pour into our country illegally. We, watch, we empty our weapons stockpiles into a foreign country, and our military fails to meet its recruitment goals. As the consequences of these things inflict suffering on the population, the government moves to silence and disarm and imprison its critics.
This is not organic. This is not what happens when social engineering stops. It is not the outcome of a revolution. It is the consequence of left-wing social engineering. A nudge here, a shove there, every now and then a shot. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that right-wing social engineering is indeed more desirable than this. The perceived restrictions it imposes are akin to prohibiting a child from playing in traffic. Done skillfully, it will, over time, not be recognized as social engineering. It will once again be accepted and be expected as the desirable behavior of responsible statesmen, educators, and media personalities. With any luck, the unfortunate period of our history which we are now in will be mocked by future generations. They will appreciate their freedom to tell the truth and view the freedom to change one's gender or kill one's offspring in the way most today view the freedom to own slaves. But we are very far from that point today, and if we uh, hope to get there, we're going to have to nudge just a little bit harder, gentlemen. And if you would like to be on the show today, uh, if you are a SurrealPolitics.com premium member, you will notice um, a link at the top of the page. Where's the, uh, I think, let me see here. Oh, so on the member menu, if you're logged in at SurrealPolitics.com, you see this, there's a link there that says call a show. And if you click that link and you go to that page and you click on audio call, I'll pick up the call and I'll talk to you. Now, uh, the plan for the future is to limit on-air audience participation to paying customers. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that because uh, I would very much like to get paid more for what I do. I don't know about you. Uh, But uh, since these things are still in their infancy, I will accept calls from the general public. And you can call in at 217-688-1433. Now, if you call into that number, you're going to notice that um, the the – Automated voice prompts give you a prompt for a a different show. Um, I imagine that most of you are going to understand what that is, and, uh, you know, I don't need to give it a much of an explanation. But you are calling into Surreal Politics. You don't have the wrong number. If you call, uh, what's the number again? The number to call in is, I just had it right, where's the thing? 217-688-1433. You call that number, um, it's going to ask you to say something. And uh, if you say something to it, then it records it and it shows it to me on my uh, in text on my screen. And I will uh, I'll pick up your call and I'll talk to you. But of course, um, the paying members over at SurrealPolitics.com, uh, you're going to get first crack at this thing, uh, provided that it works. So I'll say that number one more time is two one seven six eight eight one four three three. Another thing that was pretty interesting. So as I started to put this show together, I was actually going to do this a couple of days ago. And I was trying to create show art for this. Now, if you look at the cover of the book, Nudge, it's one elephant in front of the other, okay? And the elephant is like pushing the baby elephant is what it is. And I had this idea in my head that I would take that image, not take that image, but I would take that concept of an elephant pushing an elephant. And I'm going to say, well, I'm going to have an elephant pushing a donkey. Because as I said to you, I think that um, Republicans and conservatives need to, uh, they need to nudge a little bit harder, let's say. And so, what is, let's see here. If you are calling into the show, uh, don't call in 10 times. Just sit there on hold and I'll, and I'll take your call. Um, is this guy maybe... Let me just 
Is there a problem with this, maybe? Maybe he doesn't hear me. Hang on a second. I'm seeing somebody keeps on calling in over and over again. And I'm wondering if that's a technological problem. And if it is, I should try to address it. So let me just check something real quick. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens when we start a new show and we are uh, trying to make everything work. Now, yeah, you should hear me just fine. So, let me just... Yeah, you hear me just fine, pal. So, I'm going to probably end up blocking this person. There's anything I can do. At a previous time, part of the reason, you know, a lot of you probably already know this. Um, but those of you who are new to me and uh, Surreal Poetiques, um, you know, I used to do it on the show. And we had this problem with, like, the open phones thing. That, like, people were disrupting the program and, I, and you know, just became untenable. It's part of the reason that we started to do this idea that uh, you got to be a member to call in. So we'll see what happens with it. But so what I started, let me get back to my point here. So I was going to, what I do for a lot of the show art on Surreal Poetiques is I go on these like AI image generators is the way that I create these things. Um, in a prior life, I used to do a lot of like Google image searching and bringing things into Photoshop or whatever. And I just go and like, it, you know, alter the image to my needs and then use it for a blog post. And generally speaking, you're not going to run into a whole lot of trouble with that. But, you know, if you're if you're like if you're involved in politics and you and you're ticking off Democrat lawyers like this can come back to bite you and people can give you a hard time. And so I um, let me check something. Can I turn that up a little bit? Maybe check, 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 check. That should be higher. All right. Anyway, I'll, I'll have to look at that later. Um, and so I decided to do this like AI art generator thing, and I actually pay a monthly fee for it. It, it works pretty well. And I realized in the course of this that I tried to, I, I asked that you would, the way these things work is you give it a text prompt and you're like, hey, show me an image of this. And the things are amazing. I mean, I hadn't been near a computer for like three years, so I was shocked when I saw the way these things worked. Apparently, you guys have gotten used to them in three years, but I haven't. And so I say, hey, um, give me a picture of uh, an elephant pushing a donkey. And this does not, uh, this does not compute. And I'm going to actually, I think I can, for those of you who are watching the video, I think I can show you the images here. A lot of you have probably already seen this. This is up on my sub stack. And all the places. Let me come on. What are you doing? Where's my mouse? I think if I do this over here, and then you're gonna see boom. Okay. So that was exactly what I wanted to do. So this is the uh, the article is up on um, surrealpolitics.com, and the title of it is "Political Bias in Artificial Intelligence is Worse Than I Had Imagined." And I uh, and I was like, well, this is not gonna make very good radio. Because you can't see the because uh, you can't see the images, but I'm gonna real quick go over it um, for the people who are on the video, and I'll just describe to you that like so I I asked the thing okay show me a, an elephant pushing a donkey all right the idea being a Republican is pushing a Democrat we're taking control of the situation we're gonna start pushing you right well it go it shows me an elephant and a baby elephant like which is actually exactly what's in the in in the Sunstein book. And I'm like, well, it, I didn't even tell it anything about the book. Why are you giving me two elephants, right? So these things, they have like, they don't want, for example, like, um, 
They don't want you doing it for like violence or stuff. You know, they don't want you producing certain things. Um, and they tell you like, all right, no gore, no porn, no, you know, no Nazi propaganda or whatever. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I, you know, say whatever you will about the wisdom of that. Um, I understand the reasoning for it. So I'm like, all right, show me a donkey standing next to an elephant. I'm sorry, sorry. an elephant walking behind a donkey and pushing the donkey with its trunk. And it gives me, again, now it gives me two adult elephants and a baby elephant. I'm like, what is this about? I say, maybe a donkey walking in front of an elephant and the elephant is pushing the donkey. You know, you're giving it different word prompts and trying to, like, see if it gives you a different result. Again, it gives me adult and baby elephants. I'm like, where's the donkey in this thing? Now, I understand that they try to avoid violent imagery, so I try texts that are less likely to offend their sensibilities. And I say, an elephant and a donkey walking next to each other. And I get an elephant and a baby elephant walking next to each other. I'm like, why does this thing want to show me a donkey? Well, I say, you know, this thing, does it know what a donkey looks like? And yes, of course, sure, sure enough, it does. And I, take, I say, um, uh, imagine a donkey. I tell the thing, show me a donkey, and it shows me a donkey, sure enough. So I say, okay, um, what if I put the elephant and a donkey in like a boxing ring? Well, it has no problem putting two animals in a boxing ring, as it were, but it gives me two elephants in a boxing ring when I say I want an elephant and a donkey in a boxing ring. What is this about? And so I'm like, all right, at this point, I get the idea that maybe the AI has been trained not to put an elephant and a donkey in the same image for political reasons. So I decide to see if I can get the donkey to be pushed by a truck instead. So I say, a donkey being pushed by a truck... And as those of you could see on the video, okay, we've got a truck, we've got a donkey now. Now, the donkey's not being pushed by the truck, but like, all right, at least the two things are in the same image. So why won't this thing put an elephant and a donkey in the same image, but it'll put a, 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 a truck and a donkey in the same image? So I say, all right, let's try something with no violent implications at all. Maybe it doesn't want, you know, the donkey to get pushed by a truck because that's conceivably violent. So, so a donkey and an elephant playing poker. And for those of you who are watching the video, you can see, once again, I get two elephants playing poker. There's no donkey in the image. Well, what if I show uh, two other animals playing poker? Can I get a dog and a cat to play poker? So I tell it, show me a dog and a cat playing poker. And sure enough, that's exactly what we get. We get a picture of a dog and a cat playing poker. So I can get it to show a dog and a cat playing poker, but not a donkey and an elephant? This has to be something that the artificial intelligence was trained not to do. I'm now firmly convinced that the AI will not put these two animals into the same image. Will it let a dog and an elephant play poker? Sure thing. I say an elephant and a dog playing poker, and you see an elephant and a dog sitting at a table, and they're playing poker. How about a donkey and a cat? A donkey and a cat playing poker? I just get two donkeys at a table playing poker. Well, what's this about? You, you could put an elephant and a dog at the table. You could put a cat and a dog at a table. But you can't put a cat, uh, donkey and a cat? Wait a second. So when you do these things, you could just re-roll. You say, all right, give me, just run that same image prompt again. Sure enough, I do it, and you get two donkeys at a table. So I try to word it differently. And I'm like, okay, a donkey playing poker with a cat. No dice. Still two donkeys at the table. Except in one, there's a human at the table now. I'm like, where did you come up with the idea for a person? I'm telling you to put a cat at the table. What's going on here? I try to be more specific. I'm like, a donkey playing poker with a house cat. 
again, we get a, a two donkeys, two donkeys, a donkey, and a person. So what's going on? Has this thing got a problem with cats? I say, a cat playing poker and a donkey sitting at the same table. And once again, we get two donkeys at the table. Again, one of them looks almost like some kind of like hybrid animal, but it's not, it's still clearly a donkey. And remember, again, it has no problem putting elephants and dogs, it has no problem putting dogs and cats. So I get another image. I say two cats playing poker. And this is actually one of the better images things ever actually produced, actually, by the way. An image of two cats playing poker. And like, okay, you get two cats at a table and there's chips and there's cards out and all this stuff. Okay, let's put a donkey at the table with the two cats. So I, I have the two cats at a table playing poker. And I say, two cats playing poker with a donkey. And then you get three donkeys sitting at the table. So call me crazy, but the conclusion that I've reached from this is that this thing won't put a donkey in the frame with any other animal. It also won't let the donkey get pushed around, as was in the case with the truck. And in case you're wondering, it's not just one of these AI image generators either. There's like, there's other ones out there. If you don't know, there's like a whole bunch of them. Um, and, I, and I went to um, playground.ai and I said, an elephant playing poker with a donkey, uh, play tune style is one of these styles that they have, and you just get one elephant. I told it to do it um, in cinematic, and again, you just get one element, elephant sitting at the thing. And other people did this too, and, and as a matter of fact, there's more images. Like, I even took the, the like, featured image for this blog post I actually got from, like, um, a, a free image clip art place. And, I, and it's like the, you know, the, the red and blue you know, political logo elephant and donkey that you see in, you know, campaign stuff. And you can put into these AI image generators, you can you can say, hey, look at this image, imagine this, and make this alteration to it. And it does amazing things. And I even took that image and I said, hey, imagine this image um, in different styles. And every single time I did it, it, it just put the elephant into scenes. It wouldn't put the donkey into scenes every time I did it. So it doesn't demonstrate this bias with elephants, dogs, or cats. It's specific to the donkey, which uh, you obviously know is like the, the species of the mascot of the Democrat Party. So I understand why these people don't want the program being used to generate Nazi propaganda. Say what you will about the wisdom of this, like I said, but at least I get it. So, you know, fine, you train your, you know, your AI not to, you know, paint swastikas and make Adolf Hitler the world's savior, whatever, fine. I mean, even like the climate change thing. Okay, you've heard these stories that like, you know, ChatGPT or whatever was like programmed not to promote fossil fuels or something. So like, all right, that's their religious views, right? They're, they're cult climate cultists and they, they believe that the world's going to end in 12 years and, you know, we must repent to our sins to the, the holy God of climate. And, and that's their religion, you know, and, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to exercise their religion, whatever. But when it gets to the point that you're protecting the species of your political party's mascot from appearing in images with any other species of animals, I think they've taken their political bias to a level that becomes absurd even by Democrat standards. The only good thing that we can say about the lunacy of the time that we live in, ladies and gentlemen, is that this course is completely unsustainable. The people running the show are going to be dislodged from power either by political means or by complete civilizational collapse, but... They're not going to be able to, like, maintain control over this when they turn themselves into caricatures of insecure leaders for whom the thought of being criticized is so unbearable that they make ordinary mundane activity impossible in the hopes of preventing anyone from even thinking negatively about them. 
217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do. Give us a call. Caller, you are on the Surreal Politics podcast. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Chris. Uh, glad you're out. And I love what you've been doing as far as research. I love the books. I mean, even though they're, you know, a lot of liberal reading for people who would normally avoid it. And uh, I'm glad you recommend some of that because uh, know your enemy. Indeed, indeed. Thanks a lot. And uh, the one thing uh, in the last three years, I guess four years maybe, that you missed, Odyssey is huge, right? And there's a lot of national socialists. You call it wignats, I guess, or other people call it, you know, and they embrace the term now. And there's a lot of good guys, man. And I hope you uh, tune into some of them. I just want to name drop a few of them. Well, no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you not to name drop Wignats on surreal politics. I, I appreciate it, though, my friend. Thank you very much for the call. Oh, all right. Yeah, and I, I definitely. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the call. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me get this um, thing off my uh, the web page here. Oh wait, that is not what we want to do. We want to do that. Okay, hello. Now you can see me again. All right. So now that you've seen. Uh, now that you've seen that, uh, caller, you're on the uh, you're on the Surreal Politics podcast. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Chris. Um, so I was listening to the opening monologue, and you talked about the lawyer Sunstein and kind of his role, I guess, in pushing incrementally towards gay marriage. And I, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm kind of getting this like egg or chicken kind of picture in my head, where it's like, is Sunstein really the one that's impacting the system and changing things, or is Sunstein a product of the system? And like, there's got to be other factors that you consider um, when you think about his impact on things, because there are tons of lawyers out there with all different kinds of ideas, but not every lawyer gets to make a radical change in the system. Well, um, no, what do you think about that? I, yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's obviously, um, you know, political change can never be attributed to a single individual consciousness, I don't think. OK, I mean, these things are always the um, these things are, are perpetually the consequence of um um, lots of uh, interests, diverse interests aligning. Okay, and that's the only way that anything gets done politically at all. But I would say that Sunstein exercises more power in our political system than the average person because, partially because, you well, know, put it this way. So, like, one of the reasons that he's so influential is because he is frequently cited. Okay. So he's doing all this legal research and publishing these papers or whatever. And then because of that, he's being cited by other people. Well, you know, what's giving him the power is the citations from others. OK, so it's not it's not him. It's all of these other people who find him influential that make him powerful. Right. But because he gets those things, then he makes this legal argument. And the, and the legal argument is transparently ridiculous. I mean, anybody who thinks that the Constitution guarantees a right to gay marriage. It's like it's 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 transparently false, right? And and it's a mockery of the legal system to say that. Okay, but they're like, oh well, that's just so great, and so we're going to make nonsense legal arguments in order to further our political agenda. And because lots of other people have that political agenda, they advance it through the legal system, and and now it's become so entrenched in people's expectations that, you know, even Donald Trump won't stand up against it. Right. And that, you know, that's a lot of power. And it's not he didn't do that himself. He was one of a lot of people who were like, oh, well, you know, we should push for civil unions in like a, to nudge people towards acceptance of homosexuality. You know, he hadn't he hadn't imagined that, you know, gay marriage would even happen.
Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying in, in terms of like the citations give him power. But I mean, I, I think that might be more of an indictment of the institutions that allow that kind of ancestral relationship to happen within academia. I mean, it's kind of like when the media cites its own uh, leaked sources when it wants to, you know, pin like a, a weird conspiracy on Donald Trump, let's say. Um, so, like, I mean, the fact that he's being sourced doesn't necessarily mean that like it's no one no one else could necessarily follow that path. And just say, you know, as long as you do X, Y, Z, you can end up in a position to be sourced a bunch of times. And then that will give you power um, to then push like radical theories that people will have to take seriously. Because, I mean, like not anybody can get into Harvard Law and then not any theory will be allowed to be written and studied at Harvard Law in order for you to have papers that are used as citations. Well, yeah, I mean, that's clearly the case, right? That like, I mean, the institutions are corrupted, but all of this is at the end of the day, the, you know, the behavior of human beings, right? I mean, we talk about institutions as if they are something other than the behavior of the people occupying them, right? I mean, if if we were the, you know, I don't know exactly what the, what the uh, command structure is over at Harvard Law, but I mean, you know, if a bunch of people who listen to surreal politics were in charge of Harvard Law, then, you know, things would obviously be very different, not only at Harvard Law, but like throughout the legal system. But because people who listen to surreal politics find what's going on at Harvard Law like repulsive, like they don't want to have anything to do with it. Right. And so that means that these people get to remain in control of it. Like I have a I have a what I think is a reasonable apprehension that this is going to result in um, uh, far worse things than people pursuing you know, undesirable career paths, you know, that, that, that people are saying, well, these were, these institutions are corrupt and disgusting, so I want nothing to do with them. And so I'm going to stay away from the institutions. And so that means that the institutions will be controlled by the people who are destroying the country. And that over the course of time, that will result in the, the country being destroyed. And I don't think that that's actually, I, I don't think that that's actually a more desirable thing than dealing with institutions that one does not like. No, I, I agree with you, but I think that um, absent of the decision of a surreal politique listener to take Harvard Law seriously or not, uh, if you went to Harvard Law and tried to talk about things that you might cover on surreal politics, you would not be allowed in. You'd either not ever get in or you'd be expelled or they would, you know, you'd write a paper and then they would just ignore you. Um, I, you know, the thing is, is like, it's not just a matter of like, you know, you go to an institution and then you take it over or you get enough people to go to an institution and you can just take it over. There's other factors I think that are involved in that. I think a lot of the impacts on institutions and the way that institutions have been changed in this country has been through um, organizing outside of the institutions and, you know, looking at maybe ethnic nepotism in certain groups that have allowed them to coordinate with each other, network with each other and use their collective resources in order to like put pressure on institutions and change them from without first. And that's kind of like what I think is maybe more impactful than, Hey, you know, let's do the march to the institutions or like, maybe if I just go to Harvard law and I become a lawyer, like I'll have more power. I mean, yeah, technically you will, but you're also hamstringed by that institution if you don't have a central role in it. Well, I, I think um, there's a couple of things that you get at, which which I think are largely correct, is that, OK, you you these other organizations, these other groups, these other, shall we say, we'll call them interest groups. OK, other interest groups are organizing outside of the institutions, but they're doing so with the aim of taking the institutions. Right. Or, or they have done this previously. OK. And so 
yeah, through that through that process, you know, they they take the institution over, and and I don't have any problem with people organizing outside of the institution. As a matter of fact, it seems like a very prudent thing to do. You know, if you want to go and like, you know, you know, seize a city, <laughs> you might want to you know organize on the outside of the walls before you do it, and and that's perfectly you know a reasonable thing I I, I think to do. You you certainly wouldn't want to be like. Hello, I'm just like little old me, and I'm gonna go like walk up to Harvard Law and be like, you know, do you have a job application or something? You know, organizing and strategizing outside of the institutions in order to um, either to either to actually take control of the levers yourself or to influence the people who control the levers, I, I think is a very prudent thing to do, and I don't I don't have any objection to that, um, and I don't think that. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't. I'm not sure that there's any other way to do it. I, I think that what you're saying is, uh, I, I hesitate to call it obvious because I mean it's a, it's a very astute point, but I I don't um, I, I don't think that anything that we've uh, we've discussed is is actually at odds. And so, um, the other component of what you said, there's another point that you wanted to respond to, which I have now lost track of, but uh, I'll let you respond to what I said about organizing and. Or yeah, you... no, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, you know, the, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I'll, I'll leave it at, I guess, I just feel like um, there are other steps that have to happen first before you could start talking about, you know, you should go to Harvard Law so that you can get your radical ideas to be you know, heard by the public, I guess. And those steps happen first before people like Sunstein could then be the leaders at Harvard Law and be quoted and cited and, and get the power that they have and, you know, force both parties to take them seriously and vote them into positions of government. Um, you know, even though you would think that maybe one party would be radically opposed to him. Um, so I guess that's, I'll leave it at that. I think just, you know, step A would happen before Sunstein even hit the scene. I think, I think your, I think your point is very wise, my friend. And I thank you very much for the input. And, uh, and I thank you very much, uh, for chiming in today. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to, uh, I'm going to wrap it up today. And I thank you very much for tuning into the show. It's unfortunate that, you know, that I, like I said at the beginning of this thing, um, in case you're just tuning in, uh, we plan to stream this live on something called Entropy Streaming, which usually works very good. Uh, I've been very happy with the uh, with the services of Entropy. And right before the show today, <laughs> I went to go on to Entropy, and uh, it wasn't working. And I have all these other streaming platforms, but I've been trying to direct people to Entropy so that everybody would watch on Entropy, and then uh, instead of being like scattered all over these different things, right? And then, of course, today, for the first live airing of Surreal Politics, <laughs> of course, for the first airing of the show, um, uh, Entropy Streaming is down. And so thank you very much for those of you who tuned in on DLive. Um, oh, I should talk to you about these these radio stations that we have now. now. Um, well, I'll talk to you about one of them, and I'll let other people make the inferences about the other. I actually have two IceCast feeds, is what these things are called. Um, and the one that um, has been featured in most of your emails today is Surreal Politics Broadcasting. And if you are listening on the audio players on SurrealPolitics.com, then you are listening to Surreal Politics Broadcasting. I also set up another one that, that pertains to this other show that I used to do that a lot of you are familiar with. Um, and this is great. Um, this is actually an, uh, some software called LibreTime. That actually, you can like schedule it so you have basically a 24-hour um, live stream. Now, Surreal Politics Broadcasting 
currently carries just reruns of Surreal Politiques. And this being the second episode of Surreal Politiques, I think you might get bored of that rather rapidly. Um, but one of the things that I'm looking forward to, I spoke to the guys over at Fountain.fm, Fountain Podcast, if you don't know, you can get paid to listen to podcasts. Now, I know that that sounds like crazy, like, oh, what kind of crackpot scheme is this? No, I'm serious. That, like, like you can go and listen to podcasts, and then you'll just, they just, like, give you Bitcoin. And they, I guess they're going to show you, like, promotional stuff or something, but they're, they really aren't doing it right now. <laughs> like, I don't think I've heard an advertisement on there in, every time I've listened to a podcast. And so, um, Fountain, Fountain.fm... Uh, or you can see the links to uh, to our show on Surreal Politiques. When you look at like the subscribe links, um, we we tend to lead people either to um, a Fountain Podcast or to Podcast Addict. In any case, not only can you listen to podcasts on Fountain.fm, they are about to launch a live streaming feature so that you'll actually be able to pick up this audio feed um, in addition to listening to the podcast. And so I, to- I spoke to them. They're going to be launching that feature, I think, at the... Um, at the end of next month. And when they do, I'm going to start doing some, uh, some promotional stuff for these, for these live feeds, which I think are going to be, uh, I think are going to be a lot of fun. I might put on, uh, on surreal politics broadcasting. And as some of you know, I did a show, I don't know if I got 10 or 20 episodes out of it, something called outlaw conservative, which I'm kind of embarrassed about. Frankly, it, it wasn't really very well thought out, but I tried to do something that wasn't like a shock jock thing. And that, you know, that could, you know, obtain business services and stuff because I had, uh, you know, found myself in a position in other productions where, uh, um, shall we say, um, you know, you it was uh, you, you couldn't uh, syndicate it in the same way that you can this show, right? And so um, I think maybe I'll put uh, some outlaw conservative on there, and then I'm going to do some you know reruns of this other thing on this other show, and we're going to do some um, some some cool promotions for these live audio feeds, and I think they're going to be a lot of fun. If you have suggestions, I'd barely be interested to know um, what are if you have, if you can think of what are right-wing shows that are not like, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like squish stuff. I like they're not they're not squish stuff, but it's also not like, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But it's not like crazy extremist stuff either. Is where in that line? You know, I think like Tom Woods is probably a good example, right? Like Tom Woods markets himself as a libertarian, but I think that Tom Woods is like a pretty right wing guy, frankly. And I think that he's a good example of like what I'm thinking of, like respectable right wing stuff that isn't terrified of being called names by Democrats. I would love to find stuff like that and put it into the rotation on surreal politics broadcasting. Um, and I would like to know what your thoughts are about productions like that. So if you go to surrealpolitics.com slash contact, you can send me an email. You catch me on Telegram. Um, if, you, if you're if you on the email list, which you should be, um, surrealpolitics.com slash, I think it's, is it slash newsletter? Um, yeah, um, yeah surrealpolitics.com slash newsletter. You'll get on the email list. If I send you an email, you could like just like reply to that thing and be like, hey, Tell me yada, yada, yada. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts because uh, I do uh, care a great deal about audience, you might have gathered. And so I'm going to uh, go ahead and play the soundtrack music, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in to this second episode, the first live airing of Surreal Politiques, Real pol- Real Politique in an Unreal World. And uh, we'll be back very soon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. <laughs>